And we're now entering a sensitive time in our decade of centenaries. And we in Dublin City Council are committed to marking the events of 100 years ago in an inclusive and respectful way, building on the work we have done to date. And you know, we've had many distinguished speakers at our Festival of History over the year, this year and previous years, but none more distinguished than our guests this evening. President Higgins has spoken many times of the importance of history, and indeed was eloquent on the subject when he launched the Cambridge History of Ireland earlier this year. And it was that speech that sparked an idea in us that he would be an ideal person to close our sixth annual festival. And we're truly honoured that he has accepted our invitation. So, Lord Mayor, ladies and gentlemen, the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins. Augusta <laughs> Lord Mayor, dear friends, may I first of all thank you, Brendan, and thank all of you for that most warm and generous welcome. And I must say it is a very great pleasure for me to have been asked to come along and conclude the sixth Dublin Festival of History. More accurately, it's good to be part of it rather than to be celebrating its conclusion. <laughs> but, uh, since 2013, this celebration of history and historiography has been an annual demonstration of what is little less than the insatiable curiosity of our people to explore the past. And not only the past of our own country, but of other nations and other peoples, I think the festival thus provides all of us with an opportunity to become part of the very important work of historians, custodians of records, librarians and educators. I'm very pleased to admit that some of the librarians in Wayne, I think the libraries are incredibly important. And also the living, breathing librarian, as opposed to the technocratic notion that you can end a book and put it in a slot and take it away, that it will be recovered by some mechanical ghost. <laughs> the success of the festival is a testament to the dedication and hard work of all the staff of Dublin City Council, and particularly, as I have said, those involved in the Public Libraries, Information and Cultural Services Division. And that is something that is important. Libraries, like public places for the celebration of music, they are part of the public world, and I, I must thank them for assembling through the Festival of History, a magnificent programme of events and lectures over the past two weeks. It is another example in another sense as well of the invaluable work of the local state, of the local authorities, and particularly, as I've said, to those who worked in the related services, through Slim Levasak and Meitatak the festival has been nearly coterminous with the commemoration of the formative, formative events that, had, that took place on our island a century ago. I was speaking about these in Derry yesterday when we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the 
Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, March of the 5th of October, 1968. But this centenary, these centenary events, the Ulster Covenant, the 1913 lockout, the 1916 rising, the outbreak of the First World War, the achievement of women's suffrage, these events are no longer in the realm of personal memory. As I said in Derry yesterday, the last survivor of World War I has died, and the last survivor of our own struggles. So therefore, what we're involved in now is in the construction of memory. And this is something upon which we must, in which we all have a contribution to make. No longer in the realm of personal memory and experience, they are aspects of historical imagination and exploration, what we might term the collective memory of the nation itself. That is a contested concept, the collection of beliefs about the past that shape the national consciousness and image of Ireland. And it raises issues not only of scholarship, but quite moral ones as well, in my view. Our decade of centenaries has provided us with an opportunity to reflect not only on the foundational events themselves, as we might have read of them, but upon the Ireland that our forebears, by their deeds and actions, sought to bring into existence. Though our task, then, has not been one of simply memorialising the past, but of engaging in what I have called, following the work of Paul Ricoeur and Richard Carney and others, the tasks of ethical remembering. Remember is an active verb. It's very different from other uses. That is, ethical remembering involves confronting the complex and sometimes difficult legacies of our collective history with understanding and with generosity of spirit, while recognising that we can and will differ. And as I said, we must attempt to demonstrate in this, and I've quoted Paul Ricoeur and Richard Kearney, we must demonstrate a disposition towards narrative hospitality, one open to the perspectives of st and the stories and pains of those with whom we differ, and particularly of the stranger. In preparing my own speeches and contributions over the past se seven years, I've been acutely conscious of the heavy responsibility that is involved in the phrase I use, ethical remembering, and in particular of recognising those voices that were in our past too often marginalised or disenfranchised, excluded as proper subjects of public history on the grounds of economic status, family background, or even of gender. I think of E.P. Thompson, those who had visited upon them, as he put it, the condescension of history. During the past six years, we have collectively gone some way towards recognising the historic contribution, for example, of Irish women, not only in the battle for national independence, but in the struggle for workers' rights, for women's rights, for emancipation and for equality redressing what was a narrow, sometimes chauvinistic, public historiography. And there is now a renewed awareness that the women of the revolutionary generation ventured everything 
their lives, their respectability, their fortunes to win many of the rights that we hold dear today. Four months ago, I joined the Lord Mayor's predecessor outside this hall to unveil a plaque to commemorate the courageous act of civic disobedience and resistance carried out by Hannah Sheehy Skevington, for example, and her fellow suffragettes 106 years ago when they smashed the windows of Dublin Castle. Then the de jure's de jure's seat, if not the de facto source of political authority in Ireland at the time, our nation has a duty to honour those who struggled to create a republic, the republic we know today as a reminder too that rights are never granted, conceded, but rather won through long and difficult campaigns that demand sacrifice, and as they are as an example to us as we seek to win new rights and keep safe existing rights in our own time. I spoke in Derry about the importance of seeking to extend and sustain and stabilise the rights that we have already decided to share through international convention, rather than being any part of acquiescing in their limitation. I hope that the plaque to which I've made reference and the other initiatives, such as also the restoration of the grave of one of our most unsung and unheard national heroes, Anna Parnell, will mark the restoration of the role of women and their contribution to the very heart of our civic and public memory, as a public acknowledgement of the very central role women played in the suffrage movement, the national movement, and the labour movement. Thus, the decade of centenaries has provided an opportunity for many families to rediscover and perhaps uncover for the first time the devotion, courage and energy of their own maternal ancestors, whether they be members of the Irish Women's Franchise League, the Irish Women's Suffrage Federation, the Irish Women Workers' Union, in Inna or coming among itself. We also have begun to address more comprehensively those whose experiences were perhaps too easily sidelined in the collective memory here in the South and in the collective understanding of the formation of an independent Irish state. As many, it may be as high as 200,000 men and women from all parts of our island and from all communities were drawn into the catastrophe and horror of that collision of empires that was the First World War. It stands with the American Civil War as the single largest conflict outside our shores in which Irish-born people were engaged. And remember as well, in the case that in 1901, more Irish-born people were living outside of the island of Ireland than on the island of Ireland. And while a number of veterans of the Union cause returned to Ireland to spread the democratic gospel as the Fenians, far more veterans returned to Ireland after the First World War, bearing all the scars and troubles of war. Some, after all, had joined for adventure, some had joined in defence of the United Kingdom, some in solidarity with Belgium, and many others struggling in the aftermath of the 1913 lockout and having no jobs, not permitted to return to employment, they had joined out of economic necessity. And thus public institutions, such as the National Library of Ireland, and public archives have made possible a more intense excavation of the past, bringing a new insight into the lives and motivation of those who returned 
and those who died, and a renewed appreciation of the promise and potential of so many young people destroyed by the war. As a poet, I must say as well, there is such a striking difference between the 50th anniversary of World War I and the 100th. The 50th with the heroic structure to the verse and the centenary being able to take account of the diaries and the letters written by those who were dying in the trenches. It introduced, as it were, a more complete class contribution towards the structure of memory. But none of this has prohibited or restrained the still long and deeply held political perspectives on the nature of the First World War, on our, 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 on our long and unremitting struggle for national independence. My own political writings and practice can be regarded as part of a tradition that has long held that the First World War was a tragedy, measured not only in terms of the lives lost, but I suggest also in the collapse of solidarity between peoples. That collapsed was symbolised, for example, for those who, from that perspective, by the dissolution of the Socialist International, which had been the form of European Socialist and Labour parties in 1916. That's just one tradition, and it is one perspective. We cannot, nor should we, demand ever of others that they should adhere to any single interpretation of our past. We can, however, and we must require of ourselves and others a transparency of purpose and honesty of intent, a serious engagement with historical scholarship, and above all, respect for the sincerely held beliefs and ideas of others, including those who went before. The decade of centenaries has witnessed a renewed appreciation, not only of the idealism, but of the diversity of ideas of the revolutionary generation, a generation that came of age in Fintisiekel Ireland, influenced by all the great ideals and movement of the age, nationalism, socialism, feminism, internationalism, modernism, imperialism, anti-imperialism. There was a bubbling ferment of intellectual ideas all over Europe and beyond Europe. Yes, I think it's worth noting that the economic base has not received an adequate or significant space. I think the claim to such a space for the economic source of some of these conflicts has come quite late. There are both, of course, European and national sources that we can recognise as the source of the antipathy and neglect of the historiography of both class and particularly the economic source of conflicts. And there are exceptions. As to those exceptions, that generation of World War I, to use the term rather loosely, and I hope generously encompassed, Irish men and women of diverse backgrounds, such as Tom Kettle, a brilliant lawyer and economist, and whose reputation was built not only on his oratorical skills, which had, but also his generosity of spirit. And there was that that led him to be regarded as one of the most promising members of the Irish Parliamentary Party. And then also James Connolly, the leading Marxist thinker in our history, and later described by Professor Joe Lee as probably the most remarkable thinker produced in the 20th century. They both expressed an economic and social vision for a future Ireland, one socialist, 
one liberal. And we have a duty to place, if you like, in appropriate context their lives and their ideas. It is a duty that was, I believe, fulfilled over the past seven years. Our attempt was genuine. The name Tom Kettle was not widely known in previous decades amongst the public. Despite the public memorial in Stevens Green, there is now, however, a greater awareness of his life and legacy. Not only as a brave and courageous man of principle, but as a representative of a generation who were preparing to govern Home Rule Ireland, the Home Rule Ireland that they thought would emerge after the war. The name of James Connolly has, ever since his execution, been known and celebrated throughout Ireland and further afield as an icon of socialist thought and action. His example and his writings have, and will continue, I've no doubt, to be a source to eliminate and guide the trade union and labour movement in Ireland and abroad. The decade of commerce centenaries occurring contemporaneously with a severe economic crisis not only revived an interest in James Connolly's life, but in his theory and analysis. The harder task of treating with contemporary contradictions of economy, science and technology, the world of work, can indeed still, I believe, draw with benefit from the breadth of James Connolly's thought and his use of the like of European emancipatory thought and its evolution. I've cited examples of Connolly and Kettle, not only as they are exemplary of the very best engaged thought of their generation, not least in their respective commitments to the advancement of women's rights, but insofar as we will shortly begin to commemorate a period in which the political forces they represented, socialism and the cause of home rule, were either usurped by or sublimated into the struggle for an independent Irish Republic. We are, frankly, dear friends of history, now entering the most difficult part of our decade of centenaries. For we shall shortly commemorate the very crucible of our revolution, our war of independence, and our tragic civil war. In December, we shall recall the general election of 1918, in which the plurality of Irish people voted for a political movement dedicated, in the words of the 1918 Sinn Féin Manifesto, to, I quote, establishing a constituent assembly comprising persons chosen by the Irish constituencies as the supreme national authority to speak and act in the name of the Irish people. That election was held under the new suffrage introduced by the Representation of People Act 1918, which extended the franchise to working-class men and some women, in itself the culmination of a long struggle by the women and working-class people. The first Dáleáran and Kate Dáil, the Democratic Assembly of our Revolutionary Irish Republic, held its first meeting at the Mansion House on the 21st of January 1919, though many of its members were interned or detained for their part in resisting conscription during the preceding year. That first meeting adopted four documents, the Constitution of Dáil Declaration of Independence, Message to the Free Nations of the World, and the Democratic Programme. It issued them in three languages, in Irish, French, and English, in that order. The Dole Constitution was a short, efficient act 
designed as an instrument to enable the formation of an executive and to designate the Dole as the sole legislator. The Declaration of Independence ratified the proclamation of the Republic issued from the steps of the General Post Office by Patrick Pearce and confirmed that lawful authority in Ireland resided with the Irish people and not with the Crown. The concepts invoked by these foundational documents, national self-determination, the sovereignty of the people, democracy as the foundation of popular government, were not the output of any single national movement, but were part, as I have said, of a global movement for national liberation. After all, that first thought was meeting only months before the Egyptian revolution of 1919, in which the people of Egypt sought to vindicate the very same rights proclaimed by the deputies who were present in that first meeting in the Mansion House. In asserting the right to Irish self-determination, the first all was taking its place in a new world promised by President Wilson and his 14 points, and lest we forget it, also by Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the new USSR. It was a commitment, of course, that both leaders and both countries in which they would both reside. The message to the free nations of the world was unambiguously a plea for entry in what was seen as a new world. It stated that Ireland believes in freedom and justice as the fundamental <coughs> principles of international law because she believes in a frank cooperation between the peoples for equal rights against the vested privileges of ancient tyrannies. Because the permanent peace of Europe <coughs> can never be secured by perpetuating military dominion for the profit of empire, but only <coughs> excuse me, by establishing the control of government in every land upon the basis of the free will of a free people. <coughs> a great deal of hope was invested as well in the Paris Peace Conference which was meeting to formally end the ceasefire declared by the armistice of 1918 <coughs> Now, a dollar ride. A great deal of hope, as I have said, was invested in the Paris Peace Conference, which had been meeting to, end the ceasefire, to formally end the ceasefire declared by the armistice of 1918 and in the capacity of Irish America to influence President Wilson as the means to peaceably achieve an independent republic. The Irish delegation, led by Jean Tierkelic, were not only the, they were not the only imperial subjects seeking entry into the conference. And there are interesting divisions, the historians will know, as to how successful they were in that hotel in Paris. I know if you look at the Collins papers, you will have a certain view. If you look at the Kelly papers, you'll have a different view. A great, I think as well, present in Paris was a young Vietnamese nationalist using the nom de plume, Nguyen Annie Co. He was there expressing his hope for, in his words, the prospect of a new era of right and justice. Like the Irish delegation, he too was dismissed and he would later re-emerge as Ho Chi Minh, the leader of his own country's independence struggle. 
This engagement is a reminder of the new international field upon which our war of independence and civil war took place, of context. In a world in which the old dynastic multi-ethnic empires and kingdoms of Russia, Austria, Hungary and, the Ottoman, and Ottoman Turkey had collapsed, while the victorious allies, Britain and France, sought to sustain their new global empires, bound far more by commerce than geography. So let us recall then, as even as we commemorate the armistice of 1918 this November, that though it signalled a ceasefire on the Western Front, it did not result in an end to war, but to new conflicts throughout the world, born of revolution, territorial disputes, and great power intrigue. To the imperial gaze, Ireland was but one conflict in a zone of contestation stretching across the globe, from Southeast Asia to India to Africa and what is referred to as the Middle East. Some of the accounts are interesting in relation to the Irish language in this period, say. Why is it being so difficult just to replace one language when we have successfully replaced several in other parts of the empire? As we scrutinise the actions of the British government in this period, we should not underestimate that it was a state that had learned to think in imperial terms, one that had gradually become composed of, in the words of the British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin, a lot of hard-faced men who look as if they've done very well out of the war. The final, and in my mind, the most important document promulgated in, by the first thought was the democratic programme which outlined the social and economic principles upon which the new republic was to be based. It was probably authored and with the, from, by Tom Johnson, assisted by Carl Shannon, Tom Johnson, then the leader of the Labour Party, who had agreed with Sinn Féin not to contest the 1918 general election, which is an indication in itself of the complex alliances within the revolution. Despite any contemporary cynicism that might be directed towards by some members of the Fourth Stole, it remains a revolutionary document, and its words, like those of the proclamation of the Republic, still ring down through the years towards us today. It is interesting as well that it reveals an interesting tension between forms of nationalism and forms of egalitarianism that might be reflected. And certainly the meeting of the IRB on the evening before the proclamation is very, very interesting. It is interesting who sought to oppose it. There were three groups. One, we will never have such a thing. The other, we must have such a thing. And the other is that we'll go along with it because it will never come to mean anything, which is a matter for reflection uh, next to January. The programme commences by evoking Patrick Pierce, and not only is the distinctive, robust lyricism of the author of Ghosts and the Sovereign People echoed in its vindication of a wider sovereignty. But so too is the democratic, emancipatory language of the Fenian Proclamation of 1867. If you justify may just a portion of the programme, if I may quote it. We declare that we desire our country to be ruled in accordance with the principles of liberty, equality and justice for all which alone can secure permanence of government in the willing adhesion of the people. 
We affirm the duty of every man and woman to give allegiance and service to the Commonwealth and declare it is the duty of the nation to assure that every citizen shall have opportunity to spend his or her strength and faculties in the service of the people. In return for willing service, we in the name of the Republic declare the right of every citizen to an adequate share of the progress of the nation's labour. It shall be the first duty of the government of the Republic to make provision for the physical, mental and spiritual well-being of the children, to secure that no child shall suffer hunger or cold from lack of food, clothing or shelter, but that all shall be provided with the means and facilities requisite for their proper education and training as citizens of a free and Gaelic Ireland. Curiously, it is that food, clothing and footwear and other which would later become a point of controversy. And I also, we must bear in mind, of course, that you are dealing with not a lengthy period after Rerum Navarum of 1894. It is not enough to say simply that the deputies in the first doll meant none of it, though conservative elements viewed it, as I have said, with apprehension, some with disdain, and others fear. And I have already referred, in fact, to the debate within the IRB. Many of those who risked their lives in the War of Independence did believe in that promise and in the potential of the programme. There are reports, if you like, of Tom Johnson weeping in the gallery. For they, after all, were drawing on a great and noble tradition, that tradition of Tone, of Fenton Lawler, of the Fenians of 67, of Connolly, seeking independence not simply to substitute flags of personnel, but to create a more equal and a more just distribution of wealth, power and opportunity in Ireland. And just as we have engaged with the social economic visions of Tom Kettle and James Connolly earlier, so too must we engage seriously with the visions which animated those who fought and died between 1919 and 1923. In speaking of the importance of political ideals, I was struck by a recent paper delivered by Professor Richard Burke, one of our most distinguished historians of intellectual history, entitled Reflections on the Political Thought of the Irish Revolution, which sketched a genealogy of the ideas which informed our revolution and which emphasised the importance of taking them seriously on their own terms. Professor Burke pointed out that given the idea that ideas were published in newspapers, pamphlets rather than books, that there has been a tendency, perhaps, to underplay these sources. Of course, publishing and publicising sometimes complex theories and concepts in newspapers itself has had a very long history in Irish nationalism. We need only think of the pages of The Nation, the great journal of Young Ireland, which still makes for rewarding reading, inspired as it was by ideas as diverse as the romanticism of Johann Herder, the philosophy of the Greeks and the political ideals of Republican France. The latter drawing, if you like, the greatest opposition. I am confident that historians and indeed citizens over the coming years will take up Professor Burke's challenge and seek to understand more fully the ideals of our revolutionary forebears. It was, of course, the first stall that would organise and sanction the War of Independence and established the Irish Republican Army to prosecute that war. Though the war was fought to vindicate and defend the very existence of the Revolutionary Republic, 
as the expression of popular will. Let us recognise that, like all struggles for national liberation, it carried in a certain sense in it certain features of a civil war. Members of the Royal Irish Constabulary and Dublin Metropolitan Police, who even in 1917 could look forward to themselves serving in a home rule Ireland, were now forced to choose between the authority of the first Dole or that of Dublin Castle. Many RIC men simply wanted to serve their own community as police officers and guardians of the peace. But as an armed gendarmerie was dis dispersed in barracks throughout Ireland, the RIC represented the most tangible symbols for many of British rule in Ireland, and the battle for the hearts and minds of DMP and RIC personnel was key to both British and Republican ambitions. Then too, if the general election of 1918 represented the eclipse of the Irish Parliamentary Party, it also displayed the consolidation of the Irish Unionist Party, whose official position was the maintenance of the island of Ireland within the United Kingdom. The majority of those who voted for the Unionist Party, concentrated as they were in the northeast of Ulster, had no intention of recognising the authority of the First Dole. After all, those of such a disposition and conviction in the north who began issuing, had begun issuing a proclamation of a provisional government for Ulster in September 1913 that was to be ratified on the commencement of the provisions of any Home Rule Act. The War of Independence then would carry terrible consequences for the North with the sectarian rights of July 1920 leading to deaths of hundreds and the exclusion from employment of thousands of nationalists. The efforts of the IRA and later of the National Army of the Free State and IRB officers under the direction of Michael Collins would heighten the fears of that unionist community in the Northeast, whose leaders established what was at its heart a sectarian state in Northern Ireland. Perhaps one of the most remarkable and unremarked aspects of that state was its relative novelty, for it did not inherit the structure of British authority in Ireland, which resided here in Dublin Castle but was forced to begin anew, symbolised by the construction of the vast complex that is Stormont, now of course the home of the unfortunately dormant Northern Ireland Assembly and Executive. Yet we must recognise that for many Southern Unionists, the partition of Ireland was a bitter disappointment. Indeed, the somewhat quixotic Edward Carson, a Dublin barrister, found himself alienated from the movement he had so passionately led, and to the anger of his colleague James Craig, opposed to the Anglo-Irish Treaty and Partition. In recent years, there has been particular controversy regarding attacks by certain or some members of IRA brigades on members of the Protestant community, for example, in West Cork, the counties that saw the greatest number of casualties during the War of Independence. It is important to first observe that no simple line can be drawn between unionism and Protestantism, nor between Catholicism and nationalism, divisions of class, intellectual formation, and sentiments of nationality were often more important, as Wolfe Tone, Robert Emmett, Thomas Davis, Charles Jude Parnell, and Bulmer Hompson could all attest. And of course, it was the Presbyterian Belfast, that it was in Presbyterian Belfast, in the 1790s, 
the Belfast of Tom Paine's The Rights of Men and of the United Irishmen, which first found the sparks of republicanism in this country. And indeed it is into the middle of that century over half of the Presbyterian community were speakers of Irish. We must not be afraid then in the coming years to confront the often complex regional permutations within the War of Independence. And we must openly discuss the nature of any atrocities committed. It was in the nature of the War of Independence, conducted by flying columns in the countryside and through ambushes in the city, that it placed a premium on information and intelligence, so that not only suspected informers and spies were killed, but some upon whom the label of suspicion had been placed, and often for motives that were on occasion simply self-interested and based on self-interest. We must be willing to recognise that what were, if you like, vicious vicious encounters, born often of disappointed or conflicts associated with the division of land, could were present also in some of these circumstances. One of the most useful additions to the historiography of the revolution has been, in its day, the innovation of regional studies beginning some decades ago with Peter Fitzpatrick's 1977 work, Politics and Irish Life, 1913 to 921, which studied the country in which the county in which I was reared, County Clare. In taking one county region, it is possible to examine more closely the very many local, social, economic, and environmental factors which influenced the course of the revolution, whether in the history of land reform and land agitation, in the distribution and type of farmland, in the strength of the local church as to whether the area broke for Parnell, whether there was a strong female influence or some strong local trade union, the degree of integration into the national or global economy, and of course the myriad divisions and ties of class, gender and religion. I have had myself people point to fields in townlands and say, we should have had that field. And there were of course circumstances of adjudication in which my late uncle Michael was involved. The recent and magnificent Atlas of the Irish Revolution, for example, has added enormously to our understanding of these questions, and I hope that the commemorations of the coming years will encourage even more such endeavours. The War of Independence was brought formally to close by the Anglo-Irish Treaty. I do not intend to delay in detail on that, I do, except to say, I do, except to give what remains a very complex and contested negotiation of an extended treatment today. And not only because of the present circumstances, only to say, as we know so well, many of those elected to the second law refused to abide by the terms of a treaty they claimed was signed under duress, the now under the <coughs> duress of the now infamous threat of immediate and terrible war. The treaty debates are still compelling and sometimes disturbing reading. But there are magnificent pieces of, of, our, of rhetoric, in my view. For the contemporary reader knows that some of those who participated must bear in mind that some of those who participated in those debates would soon die by the hand or orders of their comrades. Am I, not, I always think as well of Collins's suggestion that you must always regard these as your previous comrades 
when he, as he did in, in, in his instructions to his own troops. A minority of members of the Second All refused to accede to maintenance of the Crown as the head of state, and for those with an international outlook, such as Lee Mellows, to continued membership of the British Empire, which was still continuing to deny the aspirations of so many peoples across the world, from Egypt to India. Six months after the treaty debates of 1922, both pro- and anti-treaty members of Sinn Féin sought to present a united front in the general election of 1922. But the divisions that had emerged after the signing of the treaty deepened further, creating a cleavage in society and in families that would be destructive for generations. The civil war that followed was more terrible and devastating in its prosecution and in its consequences than the War of Independence that preceded it. In the coming years, we shall be forced to reckon with and acknowledge the brutality of the civil war on both sides and the barbaric acts perpetrated, as I've said, by both sides during the conflicts. The divisions that emerged were complex, hinging not only on, on not only a practical evaluation of the feasibility of continuing this struggle against the most powerful empire in the world, but on differing ideals and ambitions and upon the very meaning of the Irish Revolution. These were divisions which cut across both free state and republican forces and were never simple. Now, should we ever attempt to cast them as simple for the purpose of creating what would be an overly simplistic narrative of Irish history? And that is our challenge. My father, John, and my uncle, Peter, both began in the same company and battalion of the East Clare Brigade during the War of Independence, based around their native townland of Ballycar and the Rallahine Ambush. My father later served in the Second Corps Brigade, based out of Charleville. And then, over 50,000 men joined the National Army of the Free State after its establishment in January 1922, many of whom had direct experience of the War of Independence and the First World War. My uncle Peter, who reared me, was amongst them. Nearly 13,000 men were interned during the course of the Civil War. My father, who had remained with the 2nd Corps Brigade of the IRA after January 1922, was amongst them in Tinta. The Civil War cast a terrible shadow over generations that followed, a shadow that would diminish the Republican idealism that had propelled our revolution. And you can read this too in something that is other than heroic in the poignant memoirs of anti-treaty soldiers such as Ernie O'Malley. And it is so true as well that many of those who had opposed the treaty felt incapable to come to belong in the new state and emigrated to the United States. And those who remained, indeed such as my father, struggled to find a place in those early years in a free state that was both carceral and conservative. And many of those interned in the car endured years of bad health from which they would never recover. Accordia, these are difficult truths, but let us not look with trepidation at any of the commemorations of the coming years, lest we turn away and ignore the sometimes difficult questions that they will raise, not just for us, but for all of the people of Ireland. Let us instead recall again the idealism of a generation who confronted the profound challenge of making a new nation 
with all the economic, political and social changes that such an endeavour required and requires. Let us take their ideas and their ideals, their best instincts, their thoughts and their actions seriously. And in doing so, let us look at the new world of nations which they sought to join. Let us perhaps gifted with the new young population of Irish citizens. Let us recover the inclusive vision of the fuel like that fired that first door. Uh, that will be, I think, uh, that will be an, so recalled in January of 2019. And I think let us do so with respect for one another and for all others. And let us continue to approach the next decade, the decade of, so we take the next step in the decade of centenaries with open hearts and open minds. And where I think necessary, forgiving purpose, that we might free ourselves from any past wrongs so that we can live with purpose in the present and together imagine a future in which we can share generously and responsibility with each other and the world and that which was promised in January 1919 as the democratic programme of the first door. Mille thank you.